0: Hello everybody, this is Maxim Ibadif and you're listening to Let's Talk. Today's episode is very special because I am not just talking to a friend. I am talking to an actual politician. Can you believe? Yes. Today we're talking to Matilda Frontis, who is an Assembly member for New York State Assembly, representing my district down here in South Brooklyn, the 46th district. Represent. Yes. In our conversation with Assembly member Frontis, we cover a wide array of issues ranging from the pandemic response, her track record in the assembly, her being an ally to the LGBTQ community, and what is on the ballot this November. and. Before you listen to this episode, I do want to remind y'all in America that early voting has already begun, and if you want to avoid the stress and the long lines of the election day on November 3rd, vote early, that way there's one less thing for you to worry next week, which will turn not just into an election day, but into a whole election month, considering how many mail-in ballots will have to be counted. And I already have voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for president vice president. And if you're like me voting for these two, please make sure that you're voting for them, not on the democratic party, but on a working families party. They will not lose your vote, it will still be counted towards them, but working families parties will get the necessary funding a third party like them needs to stay afloat. And of course, I voted for Mathilde Frontis to be the assembly member for my district because I think she's a phenomenal politician, I think she's a phenomenal community organizer, and I know that she will do a lot of good things, as she has been doing in the past two years. So, if you haven't voted already please make sure that you go and vote ASAP right after you finish listening to this episode but for now sit back and enjoy let's talk my guest today is an assembly member Matilde Frontis who represents the 46th assembly District of New York State which is my district where I live it's covering all of Coney Island and Seagate as well as parts of Bath Beach Bay Ridge Brighton Beach Tiger Heights and Grayson so a big chunk of South Brooklyn Assembly member Frontis has been elected to uh, the New York State Assembly in 2018 before that she has been a community organizer in Coney Island an executive director of Urban Neighborhood Services, as well as co-founder of two coalitions to address gun violence in Coney Island, Coney Island Coalition Against Violence, and the Coney Island Anti-Violence Collaborative. Assemblymember Front has received a bachelor degree of social work and master's of social work from NYU, a master's of arts and clinical psychology from Teachers College Columbia University, YAS, as well as a master's of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, and also a PhD from Columbia University's school, and social work, which is all very impressive, and I am beyond excited to welcome Assemblymember Frontis to our podcast. Hello, Assemblymember.
1: Hello, hello. Thank you for that very warm introduction.
0: Thank you for being a guest on Let's Talk. We're beyond excited to have you. As I told you, you're my first politician guest, so this is a great honor and opportunity for me, so thank you very much.
1: It's really my pleasure. I appreciate that you reached out to me.
0: Of course, absolutely. I've seen that you are running for re-election, and I am a big fan of you and your campaign and, and what you have done for the in the Assembly for Coney Island and South Brooklyn, so it's absolutely my honor that you agree.
1: Thank you. Thank you again. I'm looking forward to us talking today.
0: Me too. Before we you know talk politics, you know let's talk very South Brooklyn, trying to represent. Yes. I would love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So my first question to you is, where did you grow up? What's your background? And what's your connection to the 46th District? Sure, sure. You
1: know, I often joke that I've uh, shared this story with so many people. I'm sure that some of my constituents will say, we've heard this story before. <laughs> but uh, I like telling the story, actually. I'm a first-generation American-born daughter of Haitian immigrants. My mom and dad uh, came here about 40-something years ago. I was born in Southern Crown Heights, right mm. across the street from the Brooklyn Children's Museum on St. Neighborhood. It is. It is. I have many fond memories of growing up in Crown Heights. I'm the eldest of four, so I remember the move. Whereas I have some younger siblings that were babies, some were even born in Coney Island. But we moved to Coney Island in eighty five. And what brought my parents here was home ownership. We lived mm-hmm. in a one bedroom apartment in Crown Heights, and I remember as a little girl how they saved their money and I heard them talking about how they were gonna get a house. And I remember us moving to Coney Island in 85. We had a front yard, a little backyard, so it was, it was very enjoyable. So I've been living now in Coney Island for 35 years overall, give or take, because of course, I left a couple of times to go away to school at 22. I left to go to grad school, I came back, then I, you know, left again for a couple of years, but that was always my permanent residence. So that's my connection to the community, just from living there for several decades. And in my 20s, I like to say when a lot of people were leaving Coney, I felt a strong desire to stick around, because to me, it had kind of looked like a place that was undesirable, and that people wanted to get away from. Like there wasn't much going on. And I guess I had a particular calling to be a community organizer, to be a helper. I wanted to help and be useful in whatever way I could. So after my studies, I stayed around and came up with the idea of a multi-service nonprofit, which I built Mm -hmm. from scratch, which was able to offer a variety of services to the community. So that's my story of how I got to Coney Island.
0: That is a beautiful story. It really warms my heart because I know that a lot of people, when they go to politics, they go to the national politics because, you know, that's sexier, that's more exciting. And when people try to stay back and help their communities, that's really admirable. I really wish more people did that and more people went into organizing, especially here in South Brooklyn, especially in Coney Island. And I assume you've seen this neighborhood change quite a bit in the past 30 years.
1: I have. Where would I even begin? I mean, when I was a little girl... I think the number one thing that stands out in Coney Island is how underdeveloped it was. Mm -hmm. It was a place with a lot of open land and lots with nothing going on. Mm in a way that was strikingly different than other parts of New York City. So if I had never seen any other part of New York City, then it wouldn't have struck me. But having been to other places with plenty of development, I realized that it looked different. And certainly, you know, there was in the 80s, I think all of New York City was dealing with prostitution, you know. Mm -hmm. Drugs and things like that. And I, I remember that vividly, Surf Avenue being a different kind of place. But we've kind of evolved little by little. You know, there's been more development. And we can argue over has it been good, has it not been right. good, who's it for, what's going on. But in terms of how it looks, it looks different. Although I should say that now that I'm in office and I represent the 46, you know, I still can't shake off that feeling of that same experience I had when I was a little girl of Coney Island Looking different differently. I represent Bay Ridge. Very big difference in terms of how it looks compared to Coney Island. You go there and there are thousands of restaurants that you don't even know which one to pick. There's plenty going on, plenty of businesses, etc. Coney is still coming along.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting that you brought up that there's a lot of development in Coney Island because I was born in South Brooklyn, I grew up in Moscow, but I remember this area a lot and I've only moved to 46th District last year. Before that I lived in at bay, not exactly sure what district that is, but I have been seeing that Coney Island has been changing and there has been a lot of buildings, and it's very interesting because when I see those buildings and I see gentrification, there's two things. On the one hand, gentrification is considered to be a good thing because you have more business, the streets are cleaner, but then it also drives up the prices and pushes a lot of people who have lived here, like you, for 30 years, 40 years, especially people who live in those buildings on the west side. So I guess my question is, as a person who grew up in Coney Island, but also somebody who represents Coney Island, when you see that development, how do you feel?
1: It's a little complicated. I mean, I think because it's an opportunity for us to think about how do we want development to look? Right. In this community and in other historically underdeveloped communities around America, you know, I like to say that what's interesting about Coney Island, it's almost like a poster child from many other neighborhoods. It's sort of geographically contained. It's been historically neglected. So you see like a lot of neglect, like sometimes it feels like it's stuck in a time machine. Other neighborhoods don't sometimes look like this. So we want Coney Island to enjoy the same TLC and the same investment, I should say, as other neighborhoods, because we're deserving of that. I think that my position, though, for here and for all other neighborhoods just like this around America, uh, we as Americans need to make sure that when we're building up communities, you know, when we're developing them, it should never be at the expense of the people who are living there. And it's a very curious thing. It's like, We have to kind of make it work. Everybody's got to live somewhere.
0: Absolutely, because we've seen that with a lot of neighborhoods in New York City, especially Williamsburg, which was, you know, always predominantly black, Latino and Jewish. And then when they started rebuilding it, it felt like it wasn't rebuilt for people who lived there. It was rebuilt for other people to come and make it a hip, cool, fun neighborhood. Right. That's why a lot of people have that kind of a love-hate relationship with gentrification and urban development.
1: That's exactly right. And I think we all have to reimagine how we want our communities to look like. Like it needs to have a room for the people who have always been there so that they don't get priced out. Because I think that that's criminal when you have people who've suffered, who've toiled, who stuck around when things weren't that great. And now they're at a certain time and they're being pushed out. We don't want that. But we welcome uh, new people because nothing in life stays the same. Life is about change. The nature of life is change. So I think that we were not naive. You know, we know that things have to evolve and progress. And that's a part of life. You know, if you look at a history of New York City, a history of Brooklyn, every century, there's been different people who have lived here. That's how life is. But we don't want masses of people being, you know, priced out of their homes. So it's a very curious place. Right now, as we do this interview, it continues to be a mixed income community. You know, you have people living maybe on like $10,000 a year on a very fixed income. Mm -hmm. And we have some new luxury buildings that just went up right. promising a killer ocean view right which is what you're talking about
0: yeah, yeah those two glass buildings right on the boardwalk i mean it looks beautiful but i know that when they agreed to build those buildings i know they promised that a portion of those apartments are going to go to low income and now that a lot of people whom i personally know who signed up to be on a lottery and they reached out to ask what's happening with those buildings they haven't heard back right on one hand i'm happy that the view of coney island is getting prettier with those buildings, but then it feels like the people who live here are getting neglected.
1: Right. That's exactly what we don't want.
0: I also really appreciate the fact that you said that South Brooklyn is part of those like neglected, underfunded communities because it breaks my heart because I think Coney Island is beautiful. We are a tourist attraction. We have the beach. We have amazing restaurants. We have the Luna Park. But we've seen that these communities that are underfunded and underprivileged really hurt most during times of crisis as we are experiencing one right now. Eight months into the pandemic, it feels like Coney Island and the entire 46 district has been very heavily affected in the beginning of the pandemic when you started seeing how your area was severely affected how did it make you feel and what steps as a representative did you take to help your community
1: oh, well thank you for asking that question The reality is when the pandemic hit, I immediately became filled with adrenaline. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have that in us, that kind of fight or flight when there's a crisis and we kind of go into a certain mode. We don't think about it. The reality is I remember it like it was yesterday. The governor said, this is not a joke. This is not a drill. We need people to stay home. This is serious. We need people to shelter in place. Myself and one of my staff members, Charlene, we still don't understand why we did it. It was just the adrenaline that kicked in. And we're both, I guess, kind of like these courageous, you know, women. Mm -hmm. We were just, we were on the front lines. I never had a day off. I never rested during those very scary days. Not one day. I organized a group of volunteers in my community. If you go on my social media, you'll see all those pictures. Mm -hmm. And I put out a post saying that, you know, I was looking for volunteers i didn 't want anyone to come who didn 't want to. I said these are for people that were the daring among us because that's right. you always have people like that, even when if the president says stay home don 't come out you 're always going to have people who come out to check on their neighbors to check on the seniors and sure enough, we formed a bond. you know we all came together, the guardian angels, you know all these different people from the community, and we just quickly went into service mode. We started collecting meals there were some churches and some places that were making prepared food. I met some wonderful people. I don't know who introduced me to this gentleman called Dan Lee. I think I met him at an event I was attending for Borough President Adams. He was celebrating the Chinese New Year or something like that. And I made some remarks and some people came and introduced themselves to me afterwards. He runs a program here in Southern Brooklyn. One thing led to another and then we became friends and he started supplying us with freshly cooked meals from a Chinese restaurant
0: oh that's beautiful
1: it was just like what is happening like all of a sudden we were getting these meals and we had like an army of volunteers that were meeting at my office and we had a whole list we delivered meals to warbest to trump Mm -hmm. to brightwater to luna i call it coney east and coney west yes the whole peninsula from seagate to ocean Mm -hmm. parkway and i just i'll never forget that experience i didn't want us to get sick and i worried all the time and i I said, God, I hope none of us, you know, that was like so scary, but people were suffering. You know, right. people were genuinely hungry and scared. And let me tell you, you know this, but here in mm-hmm. Southern Brooklyn and in my district, we have one of the highest concentration of seniors in the whole yep. city of New York. All of the Coney East buildings, Warbass, Trump, yep. Luna are filled with seniors. Here in Coney West, where mm-hmm. I'm sitting now, full of seniors. And what a scary time. People yep. couldn't leave the house. They had to call us to say, can you please get me some paper towel? Can you get me some toilet Mm -hmm. tissue? We were running errands. We were doing groceries, you know, and then we signed up hundreds of people to get meal deliveries from the city. Thank God the city stepped up. I should say the city of New York really needs to be given some credit for doing the best that they could during that time. And we started signing people up to get the get food meals delivered to them. And, you know, we all had to think out of the box at that time, right? Right. Because every thing was closed so you have the city contracting with taxi drivers who weren't getting business and I even told the city, I said look you have all these restaurants that are sure to use them you know mm-hmm. give them the contracts give them the business to keep them open let them prepare the meals mm-hmm. and then you can deliver the meals that was one of the ideas that uh Mr. Denley had shared with us which we shared with the city mm-hmm. so the pandemic really kind of exposed right, what right. was going on that so many people our neighbors people that we see every day are just getting by Right. you know they're just getting by and whenever something happens to interrupt that process people slip if you read some of the headlines this week that came out in the mm-hmm. news there were all these headlines about how many Americans right. slipped into poverty during the pandemic that's what I saw myself
0: right personally I am not a big fan of the term slipped because mm-hmm. it implies there was an accident that's right
1: I was about to say that. that's why I said "slip."
0: right <laughs> you <laughs> Absolutely not an accident. And I was in one of those situations. I mean, I'm young, but I live with my grandma who's 72 and I am also immunocompromised. So for the first two months, her and I were absolutely terrified to leave the apartment. We were absolutely terrified to meet people because my grandma's best friends are all seniors. And, you know, whenever we would have to go to the store, like full on protective gear, then we'll have to like wash the clothing, wash the food. So it was pretty terrifying. And yes, I do have to agree with you. I do applaud the city of New York for delivering food and providing New Yorkers with opportunity. to survive the pandemic with dignity. But eight months into the pandemic and there were these second lockdowns in certain parts of New York, Queens and South Brooklyn. And I've learned about it when I went to the gym and my gym was closed. It was very interesting that even though the government knows that from the first lockdown, that is the communities like this, the poor communities, immigrant communities, communities of color that are more affected by this. So why do you feel like the second lockdowns occurred only in these poor communities, more dense communities, and what can be done to avoid this happening for the third time?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the truth is nobody has been perfect during this pandemic. Everybody has been, (laughs) I call it touch and go. You know, it's all been touch and go. And you see everybody sort of doing their best and some things work, some things don't. Now, this second lockdown, it wasn't just sort of, you know, people just pulled a name out of a hat. You know, these second lockdowns, Lockdowns were based on neighborhoods, as you know, that had the highest concentration, the clusters right. of COVID-19, which is how we got the different zones. The lockdowns were in the red zone. Many of the neighborhoods here in Southern Brooklyn, like ours, is in the yellow zone. We're still in a zone that we got to pay attention, but we're not like a red zone. And I think that in this case, I will give them the benefit of the doubt is saying that they were following the numbers. Mm-hmm. The shutdowns were not for all the zones. It was only for the zones that were problem areas where they wanted to stifle and to cut down the rate. If you follow my social media pages, what I've been doing to help out is that in those red zones, not even the red, but the next level is well, orange. I think it's the orange, yes. the first and the second tier, the red and the orange. You'll see Brighton Beach. I've been out there once a week. I go to Gravesend. I'm going to all these neighborhoods that are in my district to give out masks, to give out hand sanitizers. The first time I went to Gravesend, I walking around no one's wearing a mask. Right. So we went back again and again, you know, we've been out there, I think at least three or four times now, I'm starting to see a little bit of a difference. I know that people have been unhappy about it. I don't know what they think the right solution would be. Mm -hmm. If you're an administrator uh, or bureaucrat, you're someone who's in charge of running the city. You're sitting down, you're looking at numbers and you're looking at where COVID is on and it was jumping, Right. it was jumping. It went from like 3% all the way up to like 8% mm-hmm. right in our backyard, mm-hmm. gravesend. That was an extraordinary jump. It's not like it happened incrementally to say nothing of the other neighborhoods mm-hmm. that were just running rampant. What should people do? I mean, we had heard that there might be a second wave, right? I mean, that, that's not nothing new. Right. We were told from the beginning, be careful, be very careful because it may come again and it may come again. We even learned that in 1918 Mm -hmm. that the same thing happened. So we know the pandemic is not over. The only way to do it is for people to practice safe behavior. But if they're not doing it and it's rising, then it's like a chicken and egg situation. You want people to just say, oh, I don't know. I don't want to disrupt people's lives and then just let it go out of control. Let it get as high as it can get and kill more people. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem logical to me. I think people have varying views on this. But for me, for the record, I think that I'm always of the opinion that a little bit of discomfort is better than a lifetime of sorrow right. and pain.
0: Right. It's better to wear a mask than to pay for a funeral. That's exactly right. I know we have been talking for a while, so let's take a little break. I do want to ask you that, as you know, this neighborhood is, I would say it's very purple in terms of political parties. The west side of Coney Island is more Democratic, and then Brighton is hardcore Republican Trump. I wear a Biden mask and the amount of dirty looks I get when I leave my house. If I had a dollar, I'll I'll be as rich as Trump. Well, we don't know how rich he is, but that's a different conversation. So you are running for re-election right now. And how does it feel running as a Democrat, as a Black woman? in such a divided district.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating from a political point of view. Mm -hmm. It makes for a fascinating case study. Right. You know, I feel like I'll be talking about it for years to come mm-hmm. because this is not a standard or a typical district by any stretch of the imagination, whatever that means. Especially in
0: New York, which is considered safe Especially blue.
1: in New York. That's right. That's right. So just by the nature of this seat, I'm the second person of color in New York City to ever represent a majority white district. The 46 is a majority white yes. district. My predecessor was the first. African-American in New York City to ever win a majority white seat. I'm the second person after her. We're just living in curious times, but being in this seat has humbled me in so many ways. It opened up my mind in ways that I could have never imagined because it's allowed me to get to know people. You know, we see people all Mm -hmm. the time. We wave at them. Hello, hello, you know, neighbor, neighbor. But being in this seat and having to go to Bay Ridge, and Diker Heights and understanding that we're all people with ideological differences. But what are the differences about? We have ideological differences, but do we differ about wanting a good life? You know, every debate that I've been watching since I was a little Mm -hmm. girl, I remember being four years old and watching a debate between Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan and being glued to the TV. I've watched debates from when I was a teenager. I saw Bush Sr. debate clinton you know i've seen so many people over the years debate and last night i saw donald trump and biden debate and to me it's all a blur all those debates i've been watching since i was a little girl until now they all sound like you know it's always the same thing like we as americans in a free society we all want a good life good education for our kids we want our schools to be good schools We want health care. We don't want that if we're sick and our loved ones call 911, that we get a bill for $20,000 in the mail, which sometimes happens Mm -hmm. to people. We want to have good mental health services. You know, we need to feel supported. We want jobs. People need to be able to work. The worst thing is when you have a bad economy and you have millions of Americans looking for work, that affects their self-esteem. You have people committing suicide, people being depressed. Now they take to drugs because people can't support their family. We all want the same things. But what fascinates me so much about this country is that we just have different views of the role of right. government, right? That is what the partisanship has always been about. And that's a simplistic way of saying it. I mean, obviously, there right. historically, there have been... Right. Uh, there are there differences vis-a-vis, you know, what is the role of people of color in society? You know, should we have slaves? Should Black people be free? You know, they pondered other questions. But in more modern times, the partisan divide, the ideological divide, has frankly, generally speaking, been about what role should government play in society, where you have one party believing that government should be helping as much as it can, being a little heavy handed, providing a safety net, something that resembles a little bit of what we see abroad, not too much of it, but a little bit in terms of making sure that there is a floor. And then you have people with a different worldview saying that's not our role as government. We need to do as little as possible. Just let, you know, people will figure it out let Mm -hmm. the free market. Figure it out, let enterprising Americans figure it out. You know, if there's a problem, it's not our job to coddle people and to coddle the American public, let people come up with programs. But now I think, from what I saw last night, it's gotten totally out of hand now. You know, once you start talking about race and class. And people's views on, you know, minorities and who should live where and women and LGBT. Now you start to get into a deeper conversation. And I can say for sure that it looks now like we're having an argument over people who believe that more people should have rights in America and we should be as equal as possible. And people who still believe that some people should have less rights. For whatever reason, because maybe their parents are immigrants or maybe they came from a certain country or whatever the case is, you know, for many years, we openly said that there was no room at the table for people who were gay. I mean, that's hard to fathom, but we've just had open discrimination in this country
0: and the conversation is still happening especially with the new supreme court judge and the question of gay marriage being brought up in the supreme court as an issue to repeal that and and this is personally one of the things that really attracts me to you and i know that i'll be voting for you for sure on november 3rd i appreciate that absolutely i'm ashamed to say but i haven't been really paying attention to local politics until this year but i've learned about you when during the pandemic i was getting a lot of mail from your office about what to do what not to do and really appreciate that and then I went on your website and I saw that you have fought for LGBTQ issues in South Brooklyn, and you know, for me, it was kind of like. <gasps> in South Brooklyn, somebody cares about gay people and, you know, being a proudly gay person from Russia, so, you know, there's levels. I never thought I'd see the day when my race will be discussed in a way that is more beneficial to LGBTQ people in South Brooklyn. And, you know, one of my good friends, Lyosha Garshkov, is an organizer of Brighton Beach Pride. But every time it happens, and, you know, when we cross from Coney Island to Brighton Beach, which is kind of how you said it's a very interesting case study in Coney Island when we start walking, People are cheering and clapping. And once we cross into Brighton, people start yelling nasty slurs and screaming, this is why we vote for Trump and all of those things. So as a representative, what do you think can be done more for the LGBTQ people here in South Brooklyn? Is it providing more youth services? Is it building any kind of LGBTQ infrastructure? Because, you know, the nearest gay bar from here is in Cortelyou, which is half an hour by train.
1: Well, first of all, you said so much that Uh, Thank you again for the kind words. And, you know, I I told you that story about when I was a young lady in my 20s and instead of leaving Coney Island like everybody else, I wanted to stick around. And I thought of this organization that I built from scratch and I wanted it to be a beacon of light in the neighborhood. And I built it program by program because I looked at the society around me, the community, and I said, what don't we have? And little by little, I said, why are so many Black people not using banks? What's going on here? How come people... People don't have bank accounts. I said, All right, let me do financial literacy. And I said, You know, people don't have access to a lawyer, people are isolated. I said, Let me do a legal outreach program, so on and so forth. I did the first veterans outreach project and I did the first LGBT safe zone.
0: Yes,
1: I could write a book. I put the rainbow sticker on the window saying, This office is an LGBT safe zone, anyone is welcome here, no questions asked. This is a true story, you know. And I always say, I have to write a memoir about all these experiences. It says I saw people passing in front of my office stopping when they saw the sign and crying Aww. And coming in my office and saying, thank you for putting this sign up. You know, I'm a little older now, but I could have used a sign like this 10 years ago or 15 years ago when I was younger. And I just, I was like, I can't, I just put a sign up. Like, I didn't think I was doing anything that was so radical. I was just saying, this office is a safe space. And they said, but you don't understand. No one is doing that. There's no other space. So I said, okay, I have to do more. So the LGBT Safe Zone Project began as the safe space. Then I partnered with some LGBT organizations in Manhattan because I couldn't do it all alone. I was the executive director doing everything. And I brought them here to Coney Island. We started doing trainings with all the nonprofits in the area. I would invite them to like these breakfasts, come to this presentation. And we talked about how their organizations can be more LGBT friendly. History in the making had never been done before. It was standing room only when people came. They said, oh, we're coming to this workshop because no one ever invited us to something like this. So I'm seeing the change right in front of my eyes because I get it. You know, many of us who are from immigrant backgrounds, we come from socially conservative cultures where people have been killed. People have been killed for their sexuality. But one thing that I start to see people realizing now is how do we love the people in our lives and accept them for the way that they are? How do we, just stop projecting what we think people should be and just say, let me look at the world around me. Let me see who's here and let me adapt and relate to people and love them the way that they are. To the extent, of course, that they're not harming children or animals. Right, right? Right. I always put that clause in there. And I tell people all the time, it's like gravity and it's like nature. The universe doesn't give a damn whether we agree and believe in science. Right. If we collectively took a day to like suspend our belief and to hold hands and close our eyes and say we don't believe in science is science not going to exist is gravity not of course not that's a ridiculous idea so it's the same thing like people are going to keep being gay generations from now people are just going to keep being gay (laughs) <laughs> just like there's nothing we can do about it and this whole idea of us obsessing to death it's a horrible horrible part of the American experience that we waste so much precious time and then we see life is so short We're, we lost so many people in this pandemic which should teach us all a lesson that time is precious and we waste good time worrying about things that it's none of our business you know you see Republicans arguing over whether people want to get get married to each other. It's just like, that's none of your business. You know, that has nothing to do with you. So I'm proud of that work that I've done. And I, have I done enough since I've been in office? I mean, I've signed on to any piece of legislation. To me, I don't have to think twice about it. Anything that has to do with same-sex protections with, I was proud to sign the conversion therapy ban, uh, banning the gay conversion therapy. What a horrible, horrible thing that exists in the world. And which is, very prevalent here in the u.s yes, uh, which is still happening now yeah underground but i think you know what we can do as elected officials we use our platforms we use our voices we speak up i'm definitely an ally and i've been speaking up in any way that i can
0: and thank you very much on behalf of all queer people in South Brooklyn because, you know, we can be as proud and visible as we are, but it's not until people who are in office change things. And I do think that it takes a lot of bravery to do it. I know a lot of my queer friends are like, oh, like the government should do enough, but I understand that it's a progress. And I really thank you from the bottom of my rainbow heart for that. (laughs) You just mentioned that you signed on to any law and I went on your website and I saw that ever since you've been elected in 2018, you went to work in the Albany. You've sponsored and co-sponsored more than 150 pieces of legislation, including a lot for transparency, recording and live streaming all open meetings and public hearings, recording interrogations of juveniles mm-hmm. in juvenile delinquency mm-hmm. proceedings. You've authorized a longer period of early voting and designating early voting polls. You've co-sponsored a lot of legislation to protect people from sexual abuse, especially children with special needs in schools. And as I was reading all of that, I was like, there was like a tier- in my eye about how a lot of the issues that are on your website you fought for are not necessarily helping businesses like big corporations, but really serving the people of this community and especially people who are usually forgotten and neglected. So I really want to thank you for that. But I do want to ask you, how does it feel running for office every two years? Because it feels like that you just want a campaign and you have to start running another campaign. When do you have time to pass laws and campaign at the same time?
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, as you rightly stated, I I was elected for the first time in 2018. That seems just like yesterday to me. Right. First of all, it's exhausting. I'm perpetually sleep deprived. Uh, People have just come to get used to the fact that I'm constantly fatigued because I'm a night owl. During the day, I'm busy, busy. And then at night, I do like, you know, I'm up until two or three, sending emails, catching up on paperwork. So it's hard work. It's a lot of work. But I also, yeah, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to dig your heels in and kind of do, you know, something of value because two years, you know, people don't appreciate how long it takes for a bill to become a law. It doesn't happen like this. You know, when we look at what happened in 2019, we as the Democratic majority in the Assembly and Senate passed some unprecedented laws. Mm -hmm. People should know that those laws didn't just come to us in 2019 before it passed them. Those are laws that had been sitting around for about 10 years. First of all, they couldn't move because the Senate was controlled by Republicans, and that's Mm -hmm. another conversation. But also the process takes a long time. So when you think about that, you think, whose idea was it? You know, I don't know. I don't know whose idea it was to make it two years. City council has four years. Other positions have four years. Other positions have two years, but it does get a little bit distracting. It would have been good if these were like 3 years or 4 years or something like that. But this is my first re-election campaign, so it feels differently now running as the incumbent. Mm-hmm but I think it's still the same grassroots energy. I still feel like an activist who's running instead of some long-time entrenched politician.
0: And as I understand, you don't have gigantic super PACs behind you, large corporations Mm -hmm. that are donating millions of dollars to your campaign. You're running as a grassroots with the help of people in your community.
1: Nothing has changed in the two years. You know, it's funny. There's all this political lingo now. Mm -hmm. When I ran for the seat two years ago, I think it was Divine Intervention that I didn't know too much about politics because sometimes the more you know the more sobering things are and the more enlightened you are, you won't take certain chances. When people were asking me things like, is the democratic machine supporting you? That wasn't even a concept Mm -hmm. in my periphery because I always had my own sacred bond with the community and I have to tell that story one day and I want to shout it from the rooftop because I think a lot of people want us to believe that we have to go through this sort of, we have to stand next in line and we have to like kiss all these rings. And we saw this happening now with all these insurgents that are winning races that are like, what structure, what Democrat, like I have my own thing going. I'm my own community activist. The people know who I am. And that's how I ran. Anything else was like secondary tertiary. I was like, yeah, I've done this work. The people know who I am. They asked me to run and I'm going to run on my record. It would have been nice if people supported me and said, wow, she's done a lot of things in her neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's like support somebody like that. But, uh, okay. You know, <laughs> that's another podcast okay. about, you know, politics and how these things work, but I didn't get it, but I didn't bat an eye. I didn't flinch. Cause that's not, I don't need that, you know? And so it's weird. Even now people come to me for endorsements. I'm like, endorsement. I'm like, why? Cause I'm a <laughs> Because I'm an elected official. I said you don't need my endorsement. Do the work. Right. Get the people to endorse you. What will my endorsement do for you? What will it do? It's going to help you get elected because I take a picture with you and say that I endorse you. I said, don't be ridiculous. It's the people who are voting for you. You have to impress them. What have you done for the people? Because exactly. when the people feel like you are doing something for them, they're going to march to the polls and they're going to vote for you. I mean, it's nice to have, but you shouldn't build your whole self-esteem or your whole campaign based on it. You know, you don't need it.
0: Right. I think that's the biggest problem a lot of people have with politics is that it doesn't feel representative of the people. It feels more of a career option and it's a very inside circle. So I'm very happy to see that there is a trend in politics of some people call it socialism, but I think that power to the people, you know, this is the country that was founded an unprecedented experiment of allowing people to vote, whether the Electoral College and all of that, it's a different conversation. But in 2020, yeah. I am very happy to see, you know, coming from Russia. And one of the reasons I left Russia is because there's absolutely no representative democracy there. And I was arrested for political protesting in Russia in 2012 when Putin was reelected. And that's one of the reasons I came here. I consider myself an activist. And it was a moment when I was very scared that the same thing might happen to the United States, but seeing how now it's people-focused as opposed to politicians-focused. And I understand that you're an assembly member and an elected official, but you're also a voter, like all of us. So when you're going to go to the polls on November 3rd, I mean, I assume you're going to vote for yourself and probably the down Democratic ticket, but seeing what's happening in the current environment and how high the stakes are, what are some of the issues that you care for personally as a voter?
1: Oh, yeah, thank you for asking that. I mean, oh... (laughs) Where do I begin? Where do I begin? I just.
0: The whole list.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard. I appreciate hearing your story too. I, I'm, I'm always really intrigued by Russia, by protests in Russia. I've been following for years with different stories, different activists, protesters, uh, men and women, and kind of seeing what happens there. And it's just one of many, many countries where people's voices are stifled. And, you know, and here in this country too, it's an experiment, right? We call it the American experiment. It's not perfect we have a lot of problems. But we somehow just wake up every day and we keep pushing forward. And when we mess up and we make a mistake, we just keep at it again and you just can't give up. And when I'm going to vote on November 3rd, um, yes, I'm honored and humbled beyond words that I'll be on the ballot and I'll get to vote for myself. But, you know, we'll be starting on the top of the ticket. And I think for me, the issues that matter the most to me are decency. I mean, voters have a lot of issues that They care about. I mentioned them on this call. I can't even really get those into my head right now because I feel like the discourse and the bar has been set so low that now we're having like a re fundamental, like talking to a kindergarten class about manners and don't push your classmate and don't be mean and don't bully people. You can't eat somebody else's sandwich. Don't touch something that doesn't belong to you. Like things that are very basic sick that we teach children, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's where we are now because we've regressed so much that we're having basic conversations about decency. And it's just been painful and emotionally traumatizing to see a person without decency. It's very hurtful to see people bullying from the highest platform in the world, bullying other people, calling people names, making fun of the physically challenge, you know, making comments about people's race and calling them criminals. All of those things, whether we realize it or not, is causing us as Americans to experience second and third waves of trauma. It gives a lot of anxiety as well. It's very like hostile. So I think decency is on my mind on November 3rd. But everything else that I mentioned, you know, we gotta get this country back on track. I have so many exciting ideas. I'm bursting at the seams uh, for 2021. (laughs) I have some plans and projects that I'm looking to implement. I know that you'll be seeing them and following them, especially here in Southern Brooklyn. You know, I have a six point economic mobility plan that I look forward to unveiling soon, hopefully before the end of the year. And just making sure that, you know what, we can forge a way forward. Even with all this disaster that happened, the economy's a little bad right now, but we got to take one step ahead of the other and we got to right. figure out how we're going to get out of this so I look forward to sharing more with people in terms of my own plans but as a voter I'm going to be voting for people to restore
0: leadership that's a beautiful answer I think the bottom line that the decency is on a ballot is very very poignant and very telling and um, my last question and this is something that I ask all my guests is in the times where I feel very hopeless the pandemic and the economic recession and climate change and so many so many issues I believe that you guys to have hope that without hope, what's the point of living if you don't hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today? So what gives you hope?
1: That's such a great question. I say the same thing. It's funny to hear you say that. I often say that if we didn't have hope, you know, none of us would get out of bed in the morning. Right. We've gotten our share of lickings this year, for sure, as Americans. I mean, it's been one thing after another. The trauma of the indecency from our commander in chief, the trauma of losing our loved ones in a pandemic, mm-hmm. the trauma of an economic recession, people losing their jobs left and right, homes losing their income, households losing their income, people not being able to pay their bills. People are on edge for sure. You know, for me, what gives me hope is seriously a couple of things. When I see grassroots activism, I'm like, wow, no matter what is happening in this world, even in a pandemic, This year, we made history in the United States of America. With the killing of George Floyd, Americans said, we don't even care if we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. We're not going to sit at home and cry in the dark. We're going to take to the streets. And I don't know what to call that, but I guess that's the tenacity of the human spirit. As a student of history... It makes me feel connected across time and place. It makes me feel like this is what it means to be human. You know, every generation has had people who fought. My ancestors fought so hard. That's why we're still here today. We had to outsmart our oppressors and trick them so that we could be alive and be here today to tell the story so that we weren't exterminated. Every chapter, every Sort of era from the beginning of time has had people fighting. And here we are again, I guess it's what we do as people. And that gives me hope for the future because it lets me know that no matter what is happening in the world, whether it's a heavy handed government in Russia, whether it's something happening here in the US, racial abuse and racial really targeting of black men, people are always going to stand up and say enough is enough. And that lets me know that a hundred years from now, when I'm no longer here, 200 years from now, Every generation, people are always going to be standing up and fighting for what's right. And that makes me feel like, okay, thank goodness for that. Not everybody is going to do that. But when I know that some people will always be there, that makes me feel like we'll be in good hands.
0: One of the moments where I felt very hopeful this year was when there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Coney Island, which I was shocked. I never thought I'd see the day when Black Lives Matter reaches South Brooklyn. Maybe that's because I live among the Russians and my perspective is a little bit tilted, but I remember that I went to the protest with my then boyfriend at a time. We broke up since then. I am, yes, single. You can slide into my DMs. And <laughs> seeing that and seeing how many white people and how many Russians were among those who were more That gave me hope. And of course, we had to go to Coney Island because there were bikers waiting for us at Brighton Beach. But as you said, there's always a step forward and a step back. So thank you for that really beautiful answer. And Assemblymember Frontis, thank you very much for coming to Let's Talk. It's an absolute honor. I am really looking forward to voting for you on November 3rd. And I really encourage every resident of Assembly District 46 to vote for Matilde Frontis.
1: Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. On. I enjoyed every moment of it. I was really happy to be here with you today.
0: Thank you very much. And to all of our listeners, wash your hands, wear a mask, use hand sanitizer. Don't forget to vote. Please check out Assembly Member Front of Social Media. I'm gonna have it in the bio and I will see you next week. Take care and goodbye.
1: Goodbye, everyone. Take care.